Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on the project and PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Ida Milne and Dr. Patricia Marsh about experiences of the 1918 influenza pandemic in Belfast and Ireland. Hi, Ida and Patricia. Welcome to this episode. Patricia, a question for you. Research has suggested that Belfast was the first location in Ireland where the Spanish flu was detected. Um, Is that true? And can you point to any factors to explain how that occurred? Well, the first place, really, if we're going to be uh, totally honest about it, is was off uh, Cove in uh, County Cork, or as Queenstown, as it was called then, on the USS Dixie, where the American uh, sailors stroke troops had uh, an outbreak of flu on the ship. Don't know if it got to Cove itself. I doubt if it did. I think they had quite good quarantine uh, regulations on the ship and it didn't get to the town. But where we hear about it first, really, is in Belfast. And uh, in the Belfast newspapers around the 12th, 11th, 12th of June, there's a little advert in them asking the ladies from Mackey's uh, munitions factory to come back to work because they had been, the department had been closed down for one week um, due to the flu. So that's where you see at first um, that, that, that about the influenza. It's more, more or less telling the ladies to come back to work, but influenza is mentioned. And then... Uh, the, when I've looked at, into the Belfast uh, story, I find out that one of the first uh, casualties of the uh, flu was a soldier, and he was in the, the Ulster Volunteer Force uh, Hospital in Botanic, and that was around the 7th of June. And that sort of ties in with what we sort of think where the flu came from, from soldiers coming back into Ireland and going to places uh, where there were maybe uh, medical facilities, such as Belfast, there have been a few medical hospitals there or military hospitals. And it also breaks out in other parts of Ireland near military bases. But the unusual thing in the north is that although it's mainly in Belfast and there's Dublin, Balmaslow, Tipperary, it goes right through the north. It, there's, it's in towns such as Lurgan, Portadown, Lisburn, have nothing to do with the military. But what they do have is a railway line going from Belfast, going right through. And uh, the factory work, so the goods coming in, uh, coming in uh, to uh, the coal and stuff going in for the for the power looms into those towns, and then the goods going out. So there will be uh, people transported and maybe bringing the virus into these towns, and they had very severe outbreaks as well. Um, and Lurgan would have had its most severe outbreak in uh, the first outbreak in um, June 1918. Uh, so that was the first outbreak, which would have at the time probably considered a. a just a, a quite a bad flu. It would have been a bad flu, and it would stayed at that first wave. That's all it would ever be known about. Although it was a very bad outbreak of flu that year, but then it mutated and it came back in, and it didn't come into Belfast first that time. It came into Dublin, and um, in the north, it seemed to come into Larne, um, you know, the port at Larne, uh, or the first outbreaks. Although you do have a lot of pneumonia deaths in, in Belfast in early October, um, and whether you're going to say that these are flu or it's just or they are pneumonia, it's a matter of debate. So probably about mid-October it came into Belfast. 
But that second wave, the most brilliant wave, certainly came into Dublin and to Holes before it was anywhere near Belfast. Thank you so much. And Ida, how did the pandemic develop across Ireland? Well, really, as Patricia said, you know, that the, the first wave really showed up. Um, if, if it, it, there were lots of small outbreaks around the country in places like Ballin, the Slow and Atai and etc. early on. But they were always caused by an unusual movement of people. But the bulk of the deaths really showed that the uh, northeast quadrant down as far as, as, as Dublin uh, was the first wave in, in, in June and July. Um, the second wave then was... Um, the same area again, but also down into Leinster, places like Carlow, Kildare, uh, Wicklow, Wexford, it moved further in. And then in the third wave, it seemed to move right across the country and westwards. Uh, the picture is also complicated by, um, as newer research really shows now, um, that there was military suppression in parts of the Clare. We'd long puzzled about why, for example, it didn't spread you know, all that well around Cork in, in the earlier waves. And Cork has a lot of movement of people are with thought it had and the same thing with Clare and it seems now that they had quite a lot of military suppression uh, which meant that things like fairs and things like that wouldn't be going on or in Clare in particular the roads were broken up uh, so people couldn't move all that well from town to town so um, we think that that's why um, you know there are anomalies in pockets of the country it's a really fascinating thing to look and see why it's spread in, in some areas and, not, and we've long puzzled about Donegal haven't we oh yes <laughs> Definitely. Donny, Donegal is, has um, an unusual death rate because it is quite rural, but it's got it had the highest, certainly in Ashon and parts of Donegal had the highest death rates per population. Now, not the highest number by a long shot, but the highest death rates per population in the first wave. And uh, the, or in 1918, so that'd be the first and second wave. And in the third wave in 1919, uh, all parts of Donegal had had the highest, you know, had a very high death rate. So Donegal itself, Stranallard and Fanarchy, all those sort of places are really high. And we sort of, uh, we did puzzle about it. And uh, between us, I suppose, we've come to the conclusion that it was uh, in Innishowen, there were military barracks, there was the Lock Swilly defences, there were there were a lot of things, and therefore the soldiers are maybe bringing it in. But what I did find is that when I looked up, it wasn't the soldiers that were dying of it. Again, those soldiers, there weren't any military hospitals there, they were heading over to Derry and at Londonderry into the hospitals there. So, but they once they'd brought it in, of course, if it spread. And one of the things we think there's also seasonal migration in Donegal, where people, young people especially, would have gone over to Scotland um, to, to pick potatoes or do whatever they were going to do, and they were living in awful, awful conditions. But Scotland had a very, very high death rate of from um, influenza, so they were getting influenza, they were dying, and then their bodies were being brought back into Donegal and being waked and buried. And it was probably not that there was, and not that there was. Um, flew in their bodies, but it was the whole thing of going into little small cottages and, and things like that and going to wax, shaking hands. First thing you do is shake hands, uh, transmit it. Sorry for your loss. That, that, that happened thing. this time around too. Yeah. And you know that you see right throughout Ireland um, that the clergy and the uh, local health authorities are trying to clamp down on people having wakes, waking the dead. There's a big issue. They do know it's it's it's, it's um, spreading the disease. But that's probably why Donegal has such a high death rate, unusually, because you know it doesn't have the the normal factors that we think in big industrial cities or anything like that. So it's those little things. 
same little, but they're a big thing, you know, when you when you've oh, got it's a It's always an unusual movement to people in yes. some ways. No, yes. an aspiration. That's it, yeah. Like, like for example, those those railway workers I mentioned in Atai that came down from I think it was Derry down to Atai, and a, a guy called Frank Taff found that out and was able to explain why there was quite an early outbreak in Kildare, for example. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting, especially the anomalies and working out. That's mm. absolutely fascinating. Um, this is a question for both of you. Um, was the experience of influenza in Ireland shaped by gender, class, age or occupation? Um, do you want to, you start want to take gender one first there? Well, we'll say that, well, we suppose we'll say age. Okay. That, that's the big thing that everybody knows age was was a factor and it was an unusual flu and that it really uh, though it attacked very young people and very old as we always expected to do it attacked that age group of between um 15 and 35 uh you know that they were particularly at risk gender it seems um with in ireland uh there were more men than women died of the flu um, in the north of Ireland, as in the, the nine counties of Ulster, there were more women than men that died. But that's not unusual because more women were in Ulster. There was a higher population of women. But when we when we break that down into uh, rates, we find in counties in Belfast itself, but Belfast County and District, um, uh, County Armagh, County Donegal again, and County Derry, that basically there are higher marginally higher amount of uh, death rate among women than among men and I I personally put that down to the high um, especially in the industrial towns the high employment of women in factory work especially the linen industry um, that they're uh, working in awfully close um, dreadful conditions anyway it was really it was a death risk working there anyway but then they're working in very close proximity uh, together and they're spreading they're spreading disease but uh, the surprise is that there aren't more women really that the gender that the gender difference isn't bigger because we also have women working as nurses and nurses were particularly at risk you find that um in a lot especially in Belfast at least um Four uh, nurses died in the infirmary in November. One died in in the, in the first wave, and then and all the different infirmaries uh, across the north, there would have been at least one nurse. Doctors as well, of course, but nurses were particularly at risk. So, and also women were the main carers in the home. Uh, so they would have been the main domestic nurses. So if anybody in the family was ill, it would be the, the women in the family, the, the daughters, the sisters, the mothers that would have looked after everybody else. So uh, it's surprising that there were more women, uh, a higher uh, number of women that died. But certainly there's an anomaly in the in the nine counties of Ulster that it is higher, whereas in the rest of Ireland, it might be uh, there'd be maybe more men than women, dying, I think. So um that really shows that because uh, we're looking at class, we're sort of looking at occupations, I suppose. And um, in the north, certainly, if you worked in a factory, you're more susceptible um, to dying of of the flu. Find in Lurgan, there's quite a high proportion of women uh, dying of the flu, or 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 uh, not just people who worked in the factories, but the daughters or the sons of people who worked in the factories, the husband or the wives of people who worked in the factory. So they're bringing it home and spreading it. And a lot of the factory workers as well bring it out into the rural areas because people in the rural areas went into the towns and worked and then brought it out. So what do you want to continue on there? <laughs> yeah, I suppose the other big demographic that was badly affected was the under fives. 
And right. uh, personally, I find it kind of fascinating that both young parents and the under fives are there. And people have all sorts of theories about why this happened. But one of the theories I would have is that, you know, if you're a young parent, you're likely much more likely to be picking, be the parent of the under fives and to be picking up the kids and be close to them. You know, yeah. uh, whereas for some reason, school going age children were better protected and very few of them. You know, they were the, one of the lowest demographics to actually die, die from it. Um, it's flu is often called um, that flu is often called a socially neutral disease that it killed, you know, infected, say, the King of Spain, Alfonso the 13th, for example. Uh, but work people like Sven Eric Mommeland, who's, who's really broken it down a lot by housing size, really shows that it wasn't and that, that you know, the more cramped your housing was, uh, the more likely um, you were to, to actually die from it. And income as well would be another thing. But when I, I was lucky enough, I don't think you actually had the statistics for Belfast by social class and occupation. Yeah, no. Tricia was I had it for Dublin and it was absolutely fascinating uh, because you could see that the Registrar General for Ireland categorised death by four classes like the upper class class one, uh, the second class which is quite a big one, class two the middle class, the third class was artisan and petty shopkeepers and the fourth class then was the general working class which would be much more broadly defined than we would expect today because it would include people we now call in the middle class like prison warders and police and things like that and but it would also include the very poor and people on part labor and I was able to get really quite good definition on that and you could see that uh, across all classes that anybody who had a job dealing with the public they were much more vulnerable and their families were much more vulnerable so even in the first class um, if you were a banker or a senior member of the army or something like that you were far more likely to die um, from the flu um, than other people, say maybe a landlord or something who might necessarily have to go out that much. And it's actually fascinating that um, the Irish Times had a little uh, line in it from uh, uh, one of the more elite grocers in Westmoreland Street who said the better class of people are sending out for their messages just now. But it doesn't say anything about the poor devil who actually went out for the messages, you know. And um, But on the other hand, the, the death rate amongst uh, you know, my statistics particularly come from Dublin, but for, amongst the tenement dwellers in really poor quality housing, you know, uh, where you'd not only have flu, but you might have um, smog coming in to complicate the process through broken windows, uh, where you uh, might have also um, very little access. We've had a big focus, of course, on hand hygiene now, but where the, 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 um, there would be a shared tap between the entire household, which could have, you know, sometimes 20 or 30 families in it and a shared outdoor loo. And you would be um, doing your number one and number two into a bucket or, 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 or a jerry pot and then having to carry that downstairs. So there's a lot of hygiene issues that could have spread the, the kind of uh, flu around the place. Really hard to keep clean and to keep hands clean and clothes clean and clothes refreshed. Because don't forget, a lot of people didn't even have a second set of clothes. And they often in tenements shared a bed with the entire family. I mean, Patricia and I have seen a picture where there's uh, an image of a Dublin tenement. And I think there's actually five children in the picture, but there's one little girl standing up and four children in the bed. Yeah. And uh, you know, that the, the, so the, the, under those kind of conditions, flu would spread really quickly yeah. and with really bad results because often... The other thing that would happen, I think, is that um, a lot of the time you see a lot of warnings from the health authorities saying once you get the flu, stay in bed until you're until you're well ready. But then again, that's a very classist view. 
because you can afford to do that if you're a senior doctor talking about that. But if you are somebody dependent on past part-time labour with no savings, you go out to, to try and, and um, feed your family when you can, and then you die on the job from the flu. So when you look, particularly in Dublin, and I'm sure, you know, certain times in Belfast too, is the same, Patricia's, um, yeah. around the peak of the second week, and again, the third week in, in, in February through April 1919, uh, you see sheet after sheet of death in the Registrar General's pages for Dublin, and an awful lot of them are children, because again, and I think the death rate was something really huge. I was trying to think it was um, uh, uh, 33 per thousand living or something it was massive um, for um, the children of the working class in Dublin at that stage. Massive. And it was already always high. I mean, typically um, on the island in 1910 or so, um, about 20% of the deaths each year. There's about 70,000 deaths per annum and about 20% of those deaths would be children under the age of five. And they would die from all sorts of diseases against which we now have vaccines like measles, but principally things like TB, pneumonias and bronchitis. And then you add something like a flu to the challenges, those disease challenges. And um, it really, you know, all you can say is it just knocked them off. You see page after page uh, with, you know, sort of a daughter of a labourer or a child of a clerk or something like that with the people the working class people who are killed killed by it it's it's heartrending so it is similar in Belfast because the highest death rate really um even higher than the than that uh, young adult group was certainly infants under one in Belfast from flu and as as Ida says Belfast and Dublin had the worst infant mortality rates of the whole United Kingdom at that at that time so uh, and putting a flu into the mix is not going to make it any better and especially in Belfast the worry was that so many women uh, worked right up until the right through the confinement right up to a couple of days before the baby was born and then they were right back at work very quickly so they weren't breastfeeding their children either so um that the, those children were neglected not deliberately neglected but they just weren't getting the nutrition and if you have the flu and the crowded uh, and crowded um places to live although the living conditions in Belfast I have to say would have been much better than the yeah. living conditions in Dublin and what and that's what you find that Dublin has three very bad waves deaths but in Belfast in the third wave there's a relatively there's like when we say relatively there's 300 odd people reported to die of the flu in that wave and you're sort of saying that that's that was the mildest wave in Belfast by a long shot so um whether that was in, because immunity was gained or because living conditions or uh, people weren't so crowded whereas Dublin just kept you know the city they kept on giving with it, as far as this was concerned it, people people kept dying um, and again with the the class of people I've sort of I've looked at the uh, the genealogy.ie um, website and have looked at all of the deaths um, for Belfast of, of from flu and although the the figures that we have for pneumonia and uh, flu are much much higher when you when you look at that and you do see then the breakdown of what what professions people had and again as I said people who dealt with the public so policemen nurses shopkeepers chemists but by far and wide the biggest Set of people were labourers, um, uh, you know, um, factory workers, not just in the factories, but people who working in the shipyards, rope workers, the tobacco factories, all of those that, that, that they're people who either work there or the son or daughter 
of somebody that works there because the and the wife will just be called a housewife so it doesn't you won't know if she has is the husband or she's the wife of a husband that works in one of these areas but it's just be housekeeper or housewife so you're saying it, it's very uh, the, by far and away the biggest amount of people are in in that what we would call the working class mm-hmm. and um as i just said when, when we first started to look at this flu we did think it was an indiscriminate killer and as time has gone on we see because we didn't have these sort of breakdowns I suppose to look at as as we go on we say there's not and it's, it's a lot to do with what's in the, what we say in the newspapers so if somebody who's a bit well off dies they're going to have a nice obituary and yeah. a nice little bit right up about oh so-and-so emerging in your your so-and-so then yeah. they died tragic death blah 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 going, look at all these people but then you sort of think look at all these other people that have died too we're not hearing anything about or not even seeing maybe a gravestone for them they might not be able to afford that when, when they've passed away so that's been uh that's been a misconception that we've now with the likes of Sven and eric that that's become uh, we're all looking at it a different way and we're, we're seeing different evidence from that in that way it's really really interesting how it's developing um, and we're discovering more about it um ida if we come to you what type of therapeutic interventions if any existed for influenza and did that change during the course of the pandemic oh boy um really there was no one effective medicine so effectively doctors would come along and, and throw everything in in their medical bag at it to try and see what would work And some of the treatments are quite bizarre by our our contemporary standards. A lot of them have since been banned from the the, the, the medical um, list. Well, you know, there were things that were in very common use then, but wouldn't be now. I mean, we wouldn't regularly now use a tincture of creosote, would we? Um, For example, to gargle with or something like that. Um, But there was a really interesting um, meeting of the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland in Dublin in November um, 1918, when they came together to try and pool therapeutics and to see what you know they could actually do with it. And um, so they were talking, they said, really, you needed something for sleeplessness because a lot of people had a really bit bad headache and they couldn't sleep. Uh, so they'd give some preparation of opium for that. Uh, trienil or whatever doctors at that stage were absolutely obsessed with purging patients making them go to the loo and um, so they gave calomel but that was very frequent Uh, but calomel is made from mercurous chloride which does a lot of other bad things to your body as well as making you go to the loo but I think that was probably a confidence trick uh, because if the person is feeling too bad to get out of the bed and suddenly they feel they have to get up to go to the loo well we hope they don't have an accident the sheets I didn't say that but anyway that that you know that 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 maybe that was something that, oh i'm feeling a bit better i have to get up in some parts of the north in particular um people um the local unions the local uh, poor law unions boards of guardians might object um to the use of alcohol alcohol was very commonly given because the fumes you know hot whiskey or something would make people feel better and i know the first uh, i know um, uh, one of the people i interviewed was a guy called tommy christian and he had his first taste of hot whiskey at the age of five and he said it just did amazing things for his headache and loosen up his sinuses and everything like that um but they would object in some places so the doctors might feel obliged to give an injection of strychnine which people of our generation trisha might feel is more likely to have been james bond would be assassin's poison of choice uh, rather than um, something you give as a medicine but apparently it it acted as a kind of um, a stimulant 
I'm not quite sure how, but you know, people would have a kind of a jerky response. Uh, and of course it wouldn't be in, in the, the lethal doses, uh, we hope. Um, hospitals generally then had a provision for medicine for uh, alcohol. So the um, uh, one account I've read from the matter in Dublin said that the older doctors gave brandy and whiskey in what they called heroic amounts. And he said it didn't cure the patients. It was, this was D.W. McNamara's account, but at least they sent them on the merry dance to the hereafter. Uh, one of the most common treatments was um, a poultice uh, that would be put in the chest, which would, uh, would be of linseed between a couple of layers of um, uh, cloth, cotton. And that Tommy, again, one of my interviews had that and he said it did give a form of relief. Uh, people would say the pain in the throat was absolutely lethal. Um, they gave also quinine was used to, in those days quite often in a tonic and that would be used to reduce fevers. Uh, aspirin um, was beginning to be more commonly used, but my sense, Trish, is that it wasn't as widely used for fever, more for headache at that stage. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember seeing much about aspirin, to be honest. No, I've seen no. a lot of these, but so yeah, I'm not sure about yeah. it. It's usually quinine is used to, to, to control yeah. the fever. Um, trying to think, there was a few other exotic ones in there, uh, but I think that's most of them covered there now. There was there was one in Dungannon that uh, was like a capsule of turpentine <laughs> that one of the doctors gave, and he said it had great results. And you go, well, it might have killed that poor person or cured them. So, but he was like swore by it. You should go. How how do you get? Who's making these things? But yes, there's some like unusual ones that come up. Mm. As I just said about the alcohol, it was a bit of a problem in the north, as you might uh, be with the temperance, uh, especially in Lisburn, was one of the areas um, where the where, where the um, medical officer, uh, you know, he wanted uh, to get uh, his whiskey supply in for the workhouse and the financial officer would not sign off the requisition. And um, he signed it off. He said it wasn't, so the guy didn't, the medical officer didn't get his, his alcohol the next time he asked for it because they hadn't paid the previous requisition. So the suppliers wouldn't give it to them. So that even though it probably wouldn't have been any good, but the medical opinion was that it would have been good. So the, 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 Board of Guardians, the Guardians were overruling what the medical uh, profession was saying, which wasn't which wasn't right by you know by any manner of means. But yes, there were problems in some of the uh, um, the Board of Guardians up here. And, and we'd better mention Bavril uh, and Oxo. Oh yes, yes, uh, because <laughs> they were often given out in factories and things like that to the workers yeah. to keep them healthy. Beef tea was understood to be fortifying, yeah. and I can't remember whether it was Bavril or Oxo. Trisha, you will be one of them. Actually, ran out of bottles because it was such a draw. It, it was Bavril. Bavril set put out. Adverts uh, apologising for the shortage of bovril in this time of epidemic, and uh, the guardians in Belfast they recommended to increase the nurses' um, uh, bovril rations to help them cope with the pandemic. You know, and like four of those girls died. <laughs> it didn't do them much good, to be honest. And quite a lot of them were in, were in the hospital uh, sick. But so uh, uh, maybe a nice beef stew or something might have been better for them. But just the bovril, they sort of swore by bovril for a bit uh, that it, it was good for you. And another thing that we then to sick patients was um, a gruel, like a watery porridge that was often recommended. Yeah, to, something like, was it called Banger's Food or something? There was something like that that they used to give, but um, maybe I think it was something else, but yes, those sort of, those sort of yeah. things. Next question, um, Patricia, I'll ask you this one first. Um, what was the official response to influenza in Belfast? 
Well, in Belfast, the first wave, uh, Dr. Bailey, he was the uh, medical officer of health, superintendent officer of health for the for the town or the city. And therefore, he was in charge of public health and all things to do with public health. In the first wave, his main, uh, what he mainly did was close the schools, which is what often happened. Uh, apart from that, he decided to send his uh, department managers uh, around their different uh, districts in Belfast and verbally tell people how to uh, avoid the flu or avoid uh, avoid um, the the effects of the flu. Now this was criticised at the time because the, the, I think one of the councillors thought, why don't you just you know get some leaflets and put them out? But they didn't do that. And again, I think it's because they thought it was just a, a seasonal flu and they weren't that bothered. But the second wave, he was more proactive. Um, he uh, closed the schools again. Um, he also um, did uh, have public notices, which uh, give, which were put up on tram stations and, and put in the newspaper. And they had a list of different recommendations, like don't spit um, on the streets, you know, isolate the sick, uh, keep away from crowds, um, that, that disinfect workshops, uh, all that sort of thing. But unfortunately, as well in Belfast, um, at that time, between the 2nd of October and the 15th of November, there was a strike of the, uh, they called them the scavengers. So there would have been the uh, the bin men, I suppose, and they would have been the people who would have cleaned the streets and they would have emptied the privies and they would have emptied all of the uh, ash, ash pits and all of, of uh, the people of Belfast. And they were on strike for six weeks and the corporation didn't really... Um, uh, you know, resolve this strike very quickly. So at, at the height of an epidemic, which they thought was a bacteria, bacteria was causing it. It was like the Belfast was the most filthy that it had been in years uh, because the streets weren't cleaned. So he didn't resolve that very quickly. And he did come in for a lot of criticism from that, especially from uh, papers like the Irish News and, and whatever. So without with, with not resolving that, having these leaflets telling people to do this and do that, it seemed like, well, What's the, what's the point? Because like we go outside, it's absolutely filthy. You're talking about ventilating uh, your rooms, but you open the window and you've got all of this horrible. Because uh, there've been horses and carts, there've been all sorts in those days. I, 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 I find it hard to imagine what it would have been like. But if the you know yourself, if the bins aren't um, collected for a couple of weeks, it's it's not very nice. So if you're talking about all of the the, the stuff on the streets as well, not being, being swept or anything like that. So he, he, he did that. He also tried to close the cinemas because, uh, you know, they thought that they, rightly so, that there'd be a lot of people congregating in them. But he didn't uh, get any help from the local government board in Ireland, who themselves took their uh, recommendations to the local government board in England, which in London, and, and nowhere in, in uh, the UK were cinemas being shut uh, as a precaution. So uh, they said he could shut them intermittently and ventilate them and uh, try to uh, get children under 14 not to attend. And that was the problem that people thought, well, if kids aren't at school, because the schools are closed, where are they going to go? They were going to the they were going to the cinemas because I think they were pretty cheap in those days, and they could spend the whole day there, you know. So they didn't want them congregating there. So he, 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 although he did want to do things, he wasn't really given the backup from central government. The central government uh, control wasn't there. So that that there were his main uh, precautionary measures to try and. Uh, you know, to, to help the people of Belfast get over the flu. But um, the, in, in Belfast as well, there wasn't really a philanthropic, um, you know, uh, 
approach to helping out people, the poor in, in the city, if, if they were sick or ill, where you would find in smaller towns or or more, um, I suppose, smaller communities, you find that it was very much, you know, well, tough luck if you got the flu and, and, and people were dying and you didn't have enough money and all that. There was, there was no real um, the philanthropy from the great and the good of Belfast to help people out. So you're really dependent on the guardians and um, on what the guardians would do. Uh, and when you go to the um, the records and you look at the minutes of the of the guardians, uh, well, not so much the guardians, but the minutes of the corporation, you'll find that um, there's very little written about what they did to combat the flu or what they. Did. So we actually think they didn't do very much. And what you're finding is that you've got to go to the newspapers for that information um, to see what was actually done because it because the minute the minutes will report what happened in the meeting but um sorry the newspapers report what happened in the, in the meeting but the minutes don't they really just said after some discussion it was decided the, the, the other thing was that they made um septic pneumonia um uh notifiable disease in december of 1918 and they were one of the first uh cities in the country to do that, although Lauren beat them to it. Lauren, Lauren did that um, in the in earlier on in, in November. But you know, again, it wasn't a recommendation from the local government board. They sort of said, "Well, nobody's really doing that, but if you want to, you can." So, so they decided to do that, and maybe that helped as well because at least then they could they could keep a track of the pneumonia figures. But because influenza itself wasn't notifiable, you couldn't really trace who had it and where it was or but it is supposed that it, you know, just the way a flu, um, you know, disperses. It was it was quite difficult to to for it to be notified, or they didn't think there'd be much um, good in, in notifying the disease at the time. But they did notify um, the septic pneumonia. So that's really what he did. And then in the third wave, it was more or less the same sort of thing: uh, public notices, close the schools, um, and and that sort of thing. So that's really what it was. Businesses didn't close; they only closed because people weren't there to run them. So like when when that Max, you know that it shut down for a week was because the, the ladies were sick, and um, I think Queen's University itself they closed for a month lectures and the libraries closed, but there were more and the schools, but they were more the recommendations of those institutions rather than the corporation itself. Okay, and what was the media response to influenza in Belfast? Well, it was the same sort of when, when the media really was the newspapers as in those days. So uh, when I've talked about the scavengers strike uh, as such, um, the Irish news were really on top of that. They were criticising the corporation. They were criticising Dr. Bailey. They were saying, why, you know, aren't you getting this done? And the newsletter, which would, and Irish news, we know would, would have been uh, an Irish party paper, not, uh, but um, the newsletter, which would have been Unionist Conservative, they were just keeping very quiet. They weren't criticising, <laughs> they weren't criticising anybody about anything until it was, until the, the, the workers went back to work and then they thought, oh, it's a good job that the workers have gone back to work because it was getting pretty bad, wasn't it? But they, they didn't criticise it up the time the other thing that seemed to hit the media um was the belfast belfast prison um there was an outbreak in in the Cromlin jail um and about 100 of the inmates there had come down with the flu as part of the propaganda campaign of Sinn Féin at the time they sort of um they came down and that so there, were, there was there was stuff in that but not so much now as you would find maybe in the papers such as um the Irish independent papers that would have been based in Dublin, they had much, much more criticism and um, of, of the 
of the authorities. The Irish News did cover it, um, and um, the newsletter they all covered it, but you know, not as much as it would have been covered elsewhere in Ireland. And uh, the irony was that nobody in Belfast jail uh, died of the flu. They did get it, and they were pretty, they were seriously ill, but they all sort of recovered, and they did have doctors brought in and and such, and which would be maybe what the other people in Belfast, like I always says, like the safest place to be was in the jail at that time because they basically they were getting doctors and nurses because they wanted to knock that propaganda on the head. They want to say, right, wait, no, they didn't want anybody to die in the jail, and, and they didn't, not in Belfast jail anyway. So that was the main thing. In the first wave, the media, the, the sort of thing that hit people was there was a young schoolboy, uh, I'm calling a schoolboy, he wasn't a schoolboy, he was a newsboy, but because he was like 13 or 14, I would think of him as a schoolboy. And he worked, he was a little paper boy, I think. He worked for one of the newspapers and he delivered the papers out in the street, like you would say, the guys. And he got the flu and he died. And it, this is one of the sort of stories that was people in Belfast find tragic and it hit the newspapers and, and they set up a subscription list. Now, this is the one time when you do some see some philanthropy, they set up a subscription list for his mother because his mother had been deserted by his father, who was a soldier, and there was five or six other kids and he was the, supposed the breadwinner. And the little guy came home and he died. Uh, you know, he, he, his mother went to bed with him that night and the next morning he was dead from the flu. So it, it sort of hit the, the public... Um, you know the public opinion, and they and they sort of sort of felt sorry for that family, but you know you would find things like that, um, basically about individuals who died, or or you know families who died, and then just generally, oh, so many people have died in uh, Belfast, but then underneath that. But you see, especially during the war, when the war was still on, but you see in, in, in Germany, an awful lot of people are dying, like there's thousands and thousands that, you know, we'd always finish off an article with how much worse it was somewhere else than it was basically in Belfast itself, although it was pretty bad in Belfast. Um, and Ida, how did the public respond to influenza and the measures introduced to try to contain it? I suppose, broadly speaking, they were pretty favourably. Um, it's an interesting thing, you know, we have this kind of, we're at the stage of the pandemic now where we have this kind of lockdown resistance and we're all sick of rules. But I think that the flu itself, because there was no formal lockdown as such in Ireland at the time, um, that... Um, it literally stilled communities as a pass through. So people weren't really in much of a position to, to object to the measure. Um, they were, broadly speaking, pretty good about not getting out and mixing when they were told to, I think, Patricia, isn't it fair to say? The one exception would have been um, when the war ended in November 1918, uh, that there were big, all over the country, there were big bombers in most of the major, in most of the even small towns. And yeah. there was an identifiable surge about a fortnight later in, in death then after that um so again this was one of the reasons why we were warning about congregation um you know for the the the, 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 the 1918 could point to the need not to congregate in big numbers like that even though that was outdoor you know that those meetings were outdoor and they spread it as well um because it passes in very similar ways to of course to the way covid would pass uh sneezes um, etc um I, I think broadly speaking it's quite compliant but again, of course, the disease itself literally rendered them incapable of much protest. I think it's fair to say it probably made much more people sick than is happening now because 
there wasn't a general lockdown. Uh, so I did an estimate on it um, um, using some very simple maths and also some rather more complicated maths with the help of a medical statistician, Anthony Kinsler. Uh, both of us came to much the same conclusion, despite my rudimentary maths and his complicated ones, that it made, if you take the case fatality rate, it's about 2.5%, that about 2.5% um, of those who catch it die. Then you work backwards and estimate um, that um, perhaps 800,000 of the 4 million people on the island caught it, 800 to 900,000, including excess pneumonia deaths. Uh, the really interesting thing about statistics is that you raise that figure and say that it killed 4%. Well, then the spread is actually less. So the number infected would be less. Um, so so it's, it's, it's um, one of the counterintuitive things, I suppose, about epidemiology. Just to pick up what Ida said about the armistice in Belfast, the armistice celebrations were like three or four days long. And um, mm -hmm. when I was doing my my dissertation, I found a diary of a, a guy um, who, who was talking about 1918 and he spoke about the flu. Yeah, my sister had the flu. That's it. And she recovered. End of. And then there was about five pages about the armistice and how he went out. He was in the boys' brigade and that... What, what great crack they all had and it was five people deep and you know blah 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 all this stuff about the armistice because that was really what he what he wanted to talk about and the, and the fun they had but interestingly as i just said the peak in belfast was two weeks later of deaths from both pneumonia and flu the highest death rate was two weeks after that on the 23rd around that week of the 23rd of november so you know you, you know, just putting two and two together, that's what you get back. November that had the highest death rate. Uh, you know, most people died, and um, about a thousand people, I would say, died in Belfast from flu and pneumonia during just the month of November. It was a very high uh, number of deaths during that period. So yeah, it um, people, I suppose they. Well, they were told not to go to crowds, but they would. It's like, and now, and we find ourselves that people will still do that these days. That you know, but um, it's the you know, if if you're bedridden, then you can't, you know, and you're incapacitated, yeah. well, then you have to follow the rules because there's nothing else for you to do. And were there any long-term effects? Of the pandemic but in a medical way i'm not sure if there was any more medical uh, effects uh the there was another disease called encephalitis lethargica that sort of coincided with the flu and other viral disease and some people think it was uh, i mean maybe mutation there's a connection there but that disease that pandemic or not pandemic that epidemic lasted at least 10 years were a bit like maybe what COVID would be they kept being waves of it where people uh got got this disease and then they recovered and everything all we've got everybody's recovering from it and then you find as years went on no these people are relapsing and they're going back into hospital and some of them really they just uh ended their days in uh like uh the city hospital or not the city hospital, the, the workhouse um, in the Faber Hospital. And then they went uh, to Purdysburn afterwards because they just, there was no way that there was no way that they could do anything. Um, you know, that they, they had no way of, of, of treating these people uh, for mental illness. People, their, their brains were fine, but they just uh, were uncoordinated and they thought that they had lost their mind, but they hadn't, um, that sort of thing. So it, that, that, and they never, nobody ever got to the bottom of that disease either, how to, to cure it, whatever. And so whether it is an after effect of the flu virus or not, it's an interesting thing to look at because that went on until the late 30s at least. And then we had the war and then it was forgotten about and because it did, it stopped 
infecting people and those people had the after effects they were just forgotten about and uh, the film Awakenings with uh, Robin Williams and, and um, Robert De Niro is about that in America about that the after effects of that disease and we would have had that here in Belfast particularly and in, in the rest of Ireland as well there would have been outbreaks of that too. Fascinating thank you so much so um one last question for you both. Uh, what are your reflections on the experiences of influenza in Belfast and more widely the island of Ireland during this period? Let you start either. I suppose um, we started on this story that really hadn't been told for 100 years when we came across it or 90 years when we, we began on it. And um, it's a really odd thing to be able to, I suppose, between the pair of us and with Katrina Foley as well, shape um, a story that's not been told and now to have it as a mainstream story and like you know people are talking they don't even mention this connection with the work but they talk about the three waves and like we we worked really hard to define those three waves it didn't just happen <laughs> and um you know the same thing with the thing is like you know oh it was mostly young people like again we had to do that work to to, to, yeah. to do it and and uh, it, it's very a strange feeling um, for both of us, and, and uh, of course Katrina as well, who, who published earlier on it than, than we did, um, to have um, shaped a story, you know, the, from the time. And you just wonder how many other stories there are out there like that that are still waiting for postgraduates yeah. to discover, like yourself, Rebecca, you know, and and and, and um, work on for sixteen years and have it become something that maybe we chanced on almost by accident and have it become an absolute passion with us because you know as Tricia said there it did shape so many I mean I had so many families that are broken up by it um you know there's one story that always gets me is is um uh, Claire Ablett's story Patricia um, oh, yes, yes. Claire is a curator in the Ulster Museum and she came to us with her story of her, her great grandmother uh, dying from it on the Crumlin Road and um, when she died her her husband uh, was so upset that he took their four little children away um, to um, to um, so he took their four, the four children away to Canada so like they lost their home and their surroundings as well as their mother there's so many stories yeah. like that and I suppose our big fear um, coming into this was that that story would be the same. And, you know, in America, they've almost lost as many people as they did. There were over 600,000 lost now to yeah. COVID and there was yeah. 670,000 in all, whereas we had 23,000 on the island. And it's what, Trish, about 8,000 now or nine, is it? Probably and around yeah. that, yeah. Less than half at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Uh, of what died in 1918-19. And yeah. I think that's a great tribute to the people of Ireland and what we have done with lockdown, north and south, uh, you know, that that, that that has managed to keep, and to, of course, the medical workers as well, but that, you know, it could have been like that. Well, um, my reflections are pretty similar to to um, Ida's, that it was something that nobody really had much interest in apart from us and the people who had suffered from it. And, you know, it was hard to maybe get people interested, but I always find that uh, what diseases are a great leveler for everybody you know you could be kings queens but you get a disease if it's cancer if it's anything you know you we're all the same at that point and that's why I was sort of interested in, in following 
uh, the path of the flu because it's a time of great upheaval. There's a war. We've got the Irish Revolution about to start. We've got all sorts of things happening, but this is something that just comes in in the middle of it, and it'll it'll kill people or it'll incapacitate anybody. It doesn't care if you're a general or if you're, uh, uh, you know, a, a street cleaner or whatever it is. So that was my, what my reflection is that, uh, as Ida says, that we now people are interested because we've got a similar, a similar pandemic that is affecting everybody. We've we've approached it in a much better way than obviously it was in the flu. But they didn't. The main thing in in, in uh, nineteen eighteen is that they thought it was a bacterial disease. They had no idea what it was, and they and they basically. Um, the word, you know, they just, I think maybe in those days that people just got on with it more, you know, that life and, and, and especially death was a way of life. Children died and, and it was just so well, we mentioned about the infant mortality rates, but yeah, that's, that was just part of it. You know, kids are going to die because even the, in that year itself, there was a measles and whooping cough um, epidemics and they killed kids, uh, you know, quite a few children across the province uh, of, of Ulster. And that was just taken as for granted that that was going to happen. So it's... My reflections are that uh, people, they, everybody now knows about the flu, which is which is a good thing, and they, if, but they could they could learn more lessons from it. I suppose what they did in 1918, you know, that they knew it was in factories, they knew it was in crowds, they knew how it spread, they knew how to, you know, what you should do. But we, you know, those things haven't changed in a hundred years, and we should still be trying to follow them. We've got much more. Um, you know, we've got vaccines and we've got we've got different things now and a much better scientific grasp on it. But uh, yeah, I, I find that, you know, when we look at, at diseases, they they affect us all. They affect us all. And uh, that's that's my biggest thing from it. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Dr. Marsh and Dr. Milne, and for sharing some very interesting insights on experiences of the 1918 influenza pandemic in Belfast and across Ireland. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.